0: Welcome to Squanderlust, the podcast about the emotional side of money, why our actions aren't always as good as our intentions and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Martha Lawton. Today, I'm very excited to have an actual professor of behavioural science on the show. Our more attentive listeners will have noticed how often we talk about behavioural science on Squanderlust, and so I'm thrilled to have an actual expert with me. Our guest today is Dr. Grace Lorden from London School of Economics. She is founding director of the Inclusion Initiative and author of Think Big, take small steps and build the future you want. Before we start, I'd like to remind you there are ways you can support the show. Go to squanderlustpod.com and you can find a link to our bookshop.org affiliate store where we've put together recommended reading lists, including Think Big. Anything you buy from the list, goes to support independent bookshops and we get a small percentage of your spend to help keep me and the studio in hot beverages. We are remote recording today again so please bear with us a little bit on sound quality and background noise and that kind of thing. Okay let's do this.
2: Welcome Grace, tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Thank you for that awesome introduction Martha and (laughs) I'm absolutely delighted to be on Squander Us today. It has a really cool name Um, I'm Grace Lorden, I am a associate professor in behavioral science at the LSE. Um, which basically means that my research um, studies human behavior. And really what I'm interested in is understanding the intent action gap. So when people say they want to do things, actually mean it when they say it. So they're not just saying it for the sake of it. And then their actions actually go in another way. So really, I want to do behavioral science that gives autonomy to people and helps them stick to the plans that they actually make. So Think Big is my first book in that regard and it really talks about future and kind of future building and um, whether you're in a traditional career whether you're in a startup or whether you want to side hustle
0: amazing there is I mean intention action gap that's literally in our tagline right why our actions aren't always as good as our intentions and what we can do about it so perfect so excited by this um there is a tension in your title of your book thinking big but taking small steps can you explain that for us
2: Yeah, so what I really want is for people to imagine what their lives would be like if it all worked out, because people can come up with a list of, I can't do this because I'm not good enough, my skills aren't great enough, and all of these narratives that they have about themselves can actually hold them back. But just to take pause and think, what if it all worked out, where would I be? And then I encourage people to really think about getting to that place, but over a long journey. And that's why the small steps come in. So the small steps are the most important part of the Think Big journey. They rely on you taking about 90 minutes a week, at least actually, so at least 90 minutes a week, to devote to small steps that push you towards that kind of blue sky thinking that you actually have for yourself. And what I love about small steps are two things. So firstly, as a behavioural scientist, we know that small steps have disproportionate effects on life outcomes, which is really cool, across a whole range of life domains, including careers. And secondly, small steps are manageable. So, you know, when you think about January the 20th, it might mean an awful lot to you at this mo- moment in time, but it's actually the date where most people have, will quit or have already quit their New Year's resolutions. And the reason for that is we usually bite off more than we can chew. And these small steps in Think Big would hopefully have one or two of your listeners standing on their tippy toes for 90 minutes or more a week, Pushing themselves towards a the future that they want that they won't see next week or next month, but they probably will see it next year or maybe in two years' time, which really in our lives is actually a very small period of time
0: yeah that's that's fantastic. Uh, do you think people overestimate the kind of the big leaps and and the significant seeming events and then underestimate the day to day
2: Yes, so I think when we I, I think when we think about having these kind of big changes in our lives what kind of comes in really quickly into into us is loss aversion um, and anticipated loss aversion. So we begin to imagine all of the things that are going wrong in a very, very clear way. Um, and we rarely stop to pause and think about firstly what, what if it all works out. And mm. secondly, we always underestimate our likelihood of actually bouncing back, which I right. think is really important to bear in mind that you know, we worry about failure so much and I hate that label failure, we can talk about <laughs> why if you like, but we worry about failure and failing so much. Um, But we don't really realize that as human beings, we adapt so incredibly well, Mm -hmm. even to some of the worst things that will happen to us in our lives, we adapt. So holding that in your mind when you're actually going on a big thinking journey can be really, really powerful.
0: That's that's interesting. Yeah. So would you say that uh, this loss aversion and anticipatory loss aversion is one of the strongest effects that kind of pushes people back or are there any others that are particularly strong?
2: I mean it's worth listeners trying to think about and tune into the narratives that they have about themselves um just before they're going to go outside their comfort zone and do something new. And really paying attention, you know, people kind of will, will say, I don't have time for it. And mm-hmm. that really I think that's a kind of a narrative that really supports anticipatory loss aversion. The idea that you don't actually have time in your life to put yourself forward. Um, people would think that, you know people like me don't end up in jobs like that or people like me yeah, don't have those, yeah. those successes. And if you are somebody who has an externalizing locus of control, and one way to know about that is think about the last few times when things have gone wrong in your life <laughs> and what was to blame. And right. if the common denominator is other people or, or, or situations, um, then that's another way that your narratives can actually get you and hold you back. So the idea that, that you know things are outside your control, so why bother trying? Right. Is, a, yes, is yes. a story that we say to ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I read your book and you talked actually about how either having too external or too internal a locus of, of control can be an issue. Um, so if you, if it's all internal, then you blame yourself for everything that goes wrong and you can end up really hard on yourself and if it's too external you blame everybody else and you feel like a a victim and completely out of control is that
2: did i interpret that right yes i mean there are no bad personalities i mean and i I think every bias every personality is a double-edged sword it has a strength and it has a difficulty and Mm. if you're if you're somebody who really internalizes um, that you have control of everything in your life. If you hit a recession or you hit COVID 19 or you hit kind of a negative shock, you will internalize that shock as being something that you should have been able to navigate around, even when it was totally outside of your control. And, you yeah. know, I, men- I mentioned labeling, and I hate this labeling of. Mm-hmm people are one type and, and, mm. and, and, we, and we talk about someone as a success and someone as a failure. Yeah. And one of the best things you can kind of do to help yourself move forward in life is when you have big milestones and you go through big milestones, really disentangle. Was that luck or was mm-hmm. it down to me? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it will be luck. So sometimes it will be an external force. So the people with the external locus of control are right. And sometimes it will be down to you. So the people with the internal locus of control is right. And I think in our world today, We want to binarize everything and we want to put people into boxes Mm. and the best thing we can do is jump out of that box the society wants us (laughs) in and really pay attention is it me or is it luck because that's when we're learning that's when we're learning about about how our life is going
0: yeah and, and then is it that something lucky happened and i was able to take advantage of it because i was looking for it or is it um that something unlucky happened and I did my best, but the unlucky thing still happened. Get, yeah, like pulling apart that that kind of binary thing and saying like, how much is column A? How much is column B? Rather than it's definitely all one or the other. Is exactly really important exactly. to
2: me. I mean, if yeah. there was a hashtag, if there was a hashtag from this podcast, I would love to be. It's not all or nothing. So there's there's <laughs> these midway points, and <laughs> you should you should you should find yours.
0: Yeah, amazing. We literally did an episode quite early on, uh, called All or Nothing, which is about uh, avoiding that kind of black and white thinking. So yeah, it's a big theme, I think, of of the show. Um, talk us through the areas that you cover in your book.
2: So the Think Big is really written as a roadmap for people who want to go on a journey, but might not necessarily know how to get started. So the first thing that you'll do if you read Think Big is actually set a goal for the future. Um, And you'll do this by really identifying the activities that you want to spend your time doing. And I really just, uh, you know, ask people to move away from picking a career title or picking a lifestyle. So what do you actually want to do day to day? Then with that in hand, we talk about time. So behavioral science, life hacks for getting you to stick to the plan that you've made for yourself and actually show up for activities that allow you Mm to move towards your think big self. Then we're fighting our internal biases in chapter four. Then we're fighting external biases in chapter five. Then we talk about the environment. So how am I actually arranging my office? How am I arranging my personal space? And then last, we talk about Resilience, which was a a chapter that I wrote before Mm. COVID-19. But I was really, really pleased that I actually put it in there because I think it's the one that I've spoken the most about since the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not surprised at all about that. I have to say, as I was reading the work to prepare for the show, I found it incredibly validating um, because I love what I do nowadays, right? My work nowadays is exciting and engaging for me and rewarding and and so on. And I spend my time mostly doing things I enjoy. Um, But if I look back to my mid 20s, I had an absolute career crisis. Um, I was very directionless. I'm one of these people who graduated and just didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And I kind of bounced from rubbish job to rubbish job. And then The progress between then and now has been quite piecemeal. It's been a lot of trial and error, but I read the book going, oh, yeah, did that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was a thing I learned along the way. Somebody gave me that advice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pick that up from there. Um, And just, you know, it was very validating of all the things that I have used to get me to where I am now. And of course, I also learned new interesting ideas as well. But I I read it and I was like, oh, if I had had this as a new graduate, this would have saved me (laughs) so much time and effort. (laughs)
2: Uh, I'm with you because actually, even when I was writing the book, I was thinking, I wish I'd know, I wish that these ideas were clear in my mind when I was 22 or 23. (laughs) So I get exactly where you're coming from. Um. What do you think about
0: sort of the careers advice that people get generally and how people are taught to think about careers?
2: I think it's horrendous in honesty. <laughs> I really do. I think it's you know people enter jobs and they have a really bad idea about what that job actually entails um mm. and this isn't just children, so you know i i I've, mm. I've done experiments children where children were We've asked them about career choices and I've put the labels on jobs, so nursing, accounting, architect, mm-hmm. and then I've described the jobs and the tasks. And the choices kids make vary greatly. And I think if it mm-hmm. stopped at children, I'd feel comfortable about it. But you know, even with executive students at the LSE, um, some of them want to be entrepreneurs, and I'd often say, you know, what what do you think you would be doing as an entrepreneur? And and they don't know, which which really kind of troubles <laughs> me. <laughs> Yeah, and I, yeah. I I, really want to start breaking jobs down into tasks. And then people yeah. can say, would I be happy doing the task? Now, you know, I'm not I'm not somebody who lives in a dream where we can't be happy 100% of the time. And there's, you yeah. know, parts of my job that I dislike. But over time, I've managed to design the job where I do less of those. So now I think I'm on 20%. And I'm hoping in the next 10 years, I'll, be, I, I, I'll have shaved off another 10%. <laughs> And that's how I would love people to think about it because otherwise we're choosing job titles and we're choosing, you know, this kind of, these symbols, status symbols that actually mean nothing at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We need to get away from teaching people, you know, those, those job titles, um, and into understanding, yeah, how do you spend your time? What kind of people do you spend your time around? What interests, what interests you, um, what are you passionate about? As, a, as an area um, do you want to work in a big company or a small company like but all of those kind of thinking rather than just like yeah what's the title
2: and I, and I feel I feel it's worse in Britain than in other countries because we buy into the idea of social class in, in classifying yes. people so you know I had a call today for somebody who wants me to, to get me um involved in work that they're doing on social mobility. And I asked them, you know, how would they quantify social mobility? And they said the parental occupation at age 14. So that means that they're ranking occupations Mm -hmm. in whether they're better or not than others. Now, you know, if we're in the US, we talk about income mobility and that makes sense to me. You're either, you know, you are actually earning more income. But the fact that we actually rank occupations and then there's a judgment made about me about whether or not my occupation is better or not than somebody else's in society is a really weird way to kind of think about people so if we could move to jobs are about tasks people engage in them and then may and we we do need to measure income because that's important to society but it becomes income mobility rather than social mobility i would be much happier actually
0: yeah that's that's a really really great point we're going to take a break there and we'll come back and we'll get a little bit more um personal (laughs) I'm talking to Dr. Grace Lorden, Associate Professor of Behavioural Science at London School of Economics and the author of Think Big, Take Small Steps and Build the Future You Want. Grace, when I was reading this book, I found it's really readable, but it's also quite dense with information. How did you decide what to include and how kind of in depth to go with everything?
2: A lot came out actually. I think it was about 50% longer when I gave it to the publishers. Um, And not knowing anything about publishing, um, I didn't realise actually that a longer book would deter readers. I thought it would be value for money. (laughs) <laughs> so when they said to me we think that you know this will actually deter readers we want you to shorten it it was hard it, it really really was um, and a lot of what came out was details around experiments that had been done that backed up mm. and, they, and they went into footnotes in the back for people you know who were interested um, and you know cutting down the number of life hacks to pick my my top 10 which was also very difficult so it wasn't an easy process I I, I will be honest with you but I think in the end the choices that I made are correct and you know for people who Go on to read the book. I talk about cognitive dissonance, which basically means that whatever choices that you make, you can rationalize. So maybe I've rationalized it away, but nonetheless, (laughs) I feel good about it.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love that. I have to say, in in terms of those choices, it felt like to me, like quite a generous book. some academics who will remain nameless seem to prefer to focus mostly kind of on their own research in their popular books Um, but I got the feeling and this maybe is my own bias but I felt like you were kind of sharing the credit you gave a lot of advice that was developed by other people as well as your own research it wasn't like the Grace Lorden patented 10-step method Um, (laughs) but obviously there is your own research in there and I, I thought it'd be great to actually hear a bit more specifically about about you and and your research, like what are you bringing into this?
2: So my my work really centres around what makes people successful in life. And I'm really interested in the factors beyond their control. So I'm not so interested in, you know, know, um, what, what people's age are or what degree that they actually chose to study. But when we look at who's successful, what can we learn about their success beyond the factors that they can control? So I've ended up studying, you know, discrimination, technology shifts, And I've ended up studying um, kind of what I call life hacks in in, in a sense that, you know, you can tip the odds in your favour just by knowing about some behavioural science insights. And that's really what I've tried to kind of bring together in this book is kind of the overarching ideas of my research, um, and you know I'm so glad you said that that, that I've 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 done the survey justice because that was quite important to me because you know of course other authors have other perspectives so in order mm-hmm. to figure out what works I think we have to look at our own work but also at other authors' work and, and figure out what what do they have in common and, and why are they different and not be scared of the differences as well and that's what I've I've tried to draw out and think big. That's
0: yeah, it, it really comes across that this is in many ways a, a primer of uh using behavioral science from from across many areas of, of study around that. And and I personally I really enjoyed that. As a behavioral science nerd, I I loved that. <laughs> um <laughs> you included in this uh as a sort of running theme your own career journey and and you talked about how biases affect everyone, including yourself. And I think That was, I really enjoyed that personally. I thought that was great. I think there's a temptation, particularly as an academic perhaps, to kind of claim this super expert, perfect status. And coming back to that idea of kind of discrimination and those factors outside your control, I suspect in some ways as a a woman and potentially as an Irish person in England, you know, you may also want to, um, sometimes sort of shore up your authority, but you chose to be open and personal and not a kind of complete paragon. So can you talk about that decision a little bit?
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, I I, I think for, I wrote it, I wrote an article for the Financial Times, which should be out the next week or the week after, and I call myself a flawed behavioural scientist, because, <laughs> you know, we know really well in behavioural science that there's kind of two types of people, right? So you have people that we call naive and people that you call sophisticated. Um, And the naive people are people who are unaware of their biases and how that affects their lives. And the sophisticated people are the ones who are aware of their biases. Now, I didn't come up with those labels, mm-hmm. um, but the sophisticated people are no better off than the naive people. So I probably <laughs> would have chosen a different name. So so they know about them, but they still find it really hard to, to overcome them. You know, procrastination is the classic example of this. Yeah. If I'm sophisticated and I'm aware that I'm, you know, that, that, I, that I have a tendency to procrastinate, curbing it is still very, very difficult. And I think being honest about that is important because, there's so many self-help books that are out there that kind of claim they'll change your life really, really quickly, and mm-hmm. most people buy them and then they'll buy another one and they'll and they'll buy another one. And 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 being honest, that even when you know, even when you know the rules, that it's actually really, really hard, but it's mm-hmm. worth doing. Um, yep. I think is much more likely to make people stick to it.
0: That that is very much, I think, within our ethos here as well. Um, what do you think that? The impact is on a person's career of the decision to be kind of imperfect in public in general, um, and then specifically as well for groups that experience some kind of discrimination.
2: It's a really good question, and I, and I don't think we know that. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the evidence suggests it's a bad idea. So I right. mean, so maybe I shouldn't have done it. So the evidence suggests, you know, if you have signals that we know um, are devalued in society, you know, sadly, like being a woman, you you brought it up, you know, uh, if mm-hmm. you're a woman, you do have a gender penalty, then you're much better off playing at being perfect. So right. the, the more ticks that you have, that kind of, you mm-hmm. know, the, that are typically... You're not seen as a, in a particular role. Um, the more you're, you 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 should actually kind of shy away from looking, showing your flaws. So you should cover them. And 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 many people have kind of taken that road. And I think it's firstly to the detriment of their own well-being, but I think mm. it's also to the detriment of society because you know most of the people who are, you know, running big companies, running countries, um, they, they all have strengths and difficulties. And I think if people were much more honest about their struggles, it would be a much easier world for individuals when they come across their struggles.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, like you, I've I've made the choice that I'm happy to just sort of preempt criticism in some (laughs) ways but also to to try and that's the kind of I guess the negative manipulative side of it and the the positive side is to say uh, yeah here I am in a way you can trust me because I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not I'm not going to pretend to be more perfect than I am and and I want you to feel comfortable to be imperfect around me Um, and that's very much been the way I've approached things and uh, I think it pays off for me, actually. I think it, it works. But um, I, I agree, it is tempting to do otherwise, for sure, sometimes, and particularly when you are a bit nervous, um, and you're doing something new, the temptation is to try and, uh, yeah, overcompensate and be, be as perfect as possible.
2: I agree. And I think that I think this is getting kind of comes down to the kind of the binary worlds that we've ended up living in, where people are either excellent, or they're not. And, and I think if we can if we can move away from that and kind of think about okay everybody ha- is you know re- when you see somebody at, at a particular moment in the day they might be excellent and they might they might not be and we accept that about people and we accept you know there's moments of perfection and moments of imperfection and actually the imperfection can be quite beautiful too. It, it, I think that vulnerability um, if more people kind of spoke about their struggles we, uh, it would really help people others succeed. I think it was you know the idea that we have these role models that are perfect really mm. goes against everything that I want the world to see in the next 10 years. So the more people that come out for me, the happier that I'll actually be.
0: That's that's fab. That's fab. I love that. Um, we have zipped through this. You've been amazing. Um, as a last little point, I just want to act on a little hunch here. I feel like behavioral scientists have a favourite bias. (laughs) I I think they do. I think they have a pet bias. And I was wondering if I'm right in that. And if so, what's yours and why?
2: Mine changes. It it really is a moving target. Um, At the moment, it's the compromise effect. So it's been shown in marketing for a long time. um, And you'll you'll recognise this as soon as I say it, that if people are presented with three options, that they'll Mm. tend to pick the middle option. So, right. for example, yes. you go to any major newspaper and click subscribe and you'll see or magazine and you will see that they are going to be presented with three options and you'll be most tempted by the middle option, which doesn't necessarily need to be the best value for money, by the way. So it sometimes mm. is, but, but not necessarily. But if you use that for your time management, it's really, really powerful also. So we okay. think about traditional to do lists. We write lists of what we actually are going to accomplish in a day and we imagine ourselves ticking them off one by one. Mm-hmm. And very often people fail because when when the brain is presented with an all or nothing scenario, it panics. So you procrastinate, particularly if you have this tendency. And if mm. you are a procrastinator, try and break up your to do list into three different levels. Low right. output, medium output and high output. And I can promise you that if you do that and regardless of which output you achieve, you tick it off as done. The majority of people listening who try this will end up picking the, the mid output. There's something about the way our brain is wired that we end up. We want to be in the middle of the distribution. Slap bang in the middle. Um, <laughs> so if you've ever taken a statistics class, you're on the peak of the normal distribution, and that's that's the kind of mid range output. So I really love the compromise effect because it doesn't just work to get us to buy things, which is quite dangerous, as as, as I'm sure you've discussed mm. many times on your on your on your podcast. But it also can actually get us to show up for ourselves and get things done.
0: You know what? We hadn't talked about it on the show, but I would love to at some point. That's great, and we kind of just have. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's awesome, and reminds me of. So my first ever job, I worked for a luxury restaurant, um, which was an experience. Um, they have. I want to ask you. I want to in... ask you which one. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> it, it's not. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, so yeah, it was. <laughs> it, it was a. It was a startup restaurant, and it didn't last very long. Um, and that's not down to me. I might add, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was terrifying, frankly. Um, but the thing I was going to say about it was the compromise effect. Um, the vast majority of people in restaurants will choose the second cheapest wine on the list. Yes, because most people know nothing about wine. They don't want to look cheap by buying the cheapest um and so they will buy the second cheapest wine on the list which is sort of a compromise effect thing right um and then that means if you are a restaurateur you actually put the uh the wine with the biggest profit margin second from the bottom price
2: wise yeah that makes sense
0: uh and you will sell loads of it um and that's how you make the most money on wine as a restaurateur <laughs>
2: that 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 feels that feels really intuitive because you're right people don't want to pick from the bottom of the list but most people won't you know won't care whether or not it's any bit more expensive than the second i like that
0: yeah yeah and I like most people don't have the confidence to pick from the higher uh, more expensive wines they they're worried that they'll pick a more expensive wine and then it won't be nice um and so yeah they they don't want to be cheap and pick the bottom one they pick the second one and you know if you're a smart restaurateur you just make that the big the one with the biggest profit margin um Oh, so
2: fun, Tr- fun restaurant one, fact. Tricky, tricking your customers, <laughs> which, I, yes. which is which yes. is really, you know, so when I think of behavioral science, I think the best mm. behavioral science is when you're giving autonomy to people, you're giving them information to allow them make better choices themselves. And, and, and the yeah. key word there is better choices themselves. I, I really don't like the kind of the, the, the brand of behavioral science, which is about tricking and nudging people in directions that might not necessarily be good for them. Um, so yeah. I I hope I hope people who are listening will will recognise that I'm in the first bucket, um, <laughs> and if they choose to read Think Big, I hope they enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm sure they will. I like I said, I found it very readable. Uh, I found your your story very relatable, and um, yeah, there's just it's just a completely packed full of good advice. So. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. If our listeners want to learn more about you, where can they find you?
2: So I have a website. It's um, www.gracelorden.com and also Twitter, at um, Grace underscore. I would love to um, hear from you.
0: Amazing. Thank you. We will put links to those in our show notes. And as a reminder, our listeners can pick up a copy of Grace's book, Think Big, through the show notes on the Squanderlust website, which is squanderlustpod.com.
2: Grace, it's been fascinating and so much fun. Thank you so much. No problem. i really, really enjoyed it. So if you ever want me back, do do just ask. I would love to come.
0: Thank you. Amazing. You've been listening to Squanderlust, the podcast about the emotional side of money with me, Martha Lawton. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love one of those nice five-star reviews too. Or you can tell a friend about us, maybe somewhere on social media where we're at squanderlustpod. You can also find us at squanderlustpod.com where we put show notes, useful links and ways to support the show. Squanderlust is sponsored by Wardour Studios in Fitzrovia, London, with production by David Smith, Alicia Cunningham, Charlie Brandon King and Tom Berry. Our theme music is by Wardour Studios and graphic design by Jason Reed.